The following program is a paid presentation. The views and or opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of KWAM. Welcome to the Variety Hour on AM 990, where local leaders talk Memphis. Listen to you move your mouth, I bet you come from way down south. Now don't tell me, let me guess, you from the town that I love best. Talk Memphis, I wish you would. Talk Memphis, you sound so good. Talk Memphis, high on the bluff. I swear I can't get enough listening to you talk that stuff. Talk Memphis, oh yeah, talk Memphis. Welcome to Talk Money on AM 990. And now here's your host, Jim Shoemaker. And good morning, and I tell you, is it a good morning? The market just, you know, one of the things that we kind of like to talk about on Friday mornings is what's happening with the market. Well, last week, you know, I had a great guest, a guy that's been around for a long time with us, Keith Quinn, and we kind of dove into some of the technical thoughts, processes, and, you know, just kind of getting into it. But I thought it appropriate to invite Rusty Leonard, a frequent guest of ours with Stewardship Partners. He's going to be with us in a few minutes, and I tell you, one of the things I want to ask him is, why has the market done nothing but either go straight, in fact, go straight down? In fact, somebody said, hey, it's Monday, Martin Luther King Day. Guess what? The market's not going to go down today. Well, of course not. The market was closed on Monday, and that's kind of what happens. But, you know, uh, we've got him. He's going to talk with us. And then at the second half of the program, I'm going to give you six or seven kind of rules of the game of what to do during this kind of market. So, you know, it's very important you stay with me because I'm going to kind of give you these guidelines, kind of bumpers. If you were out bowling and, you know, if you bowl like I do, if you hit 100, you've had a good night, you wouldn't mind putting the, you know, the gutter balls in there. And so they had a little gutter thing so the balls wouldn't end up there. Well, I'm going to give you some kind of those barriers to stay in the market and how to handle that. That's going to be what we're going to do in the second half of the program. But Art, guess what, guy? I got a question for you. How many people do you think make up the middle class today as compared to when I was in college, 1971? What do you think? How many people make up the middle class? Yeah. Do you want an exact number? Yeah, you I want, want to know if exact, it's higher or want, lower. No, no, I want the exact. I, I can't give you an exact number. It's what you number. looked up this morning. I, mean, <laughs> I did not look up anything uh, this morning. I tell you, you know, it's But if amazing. I had to assume, I yep. would assume that the middle class uh, would be fewer. Fewer. Well, guess, boy, you're smart. I tell you, in 1971, mm-hmm. 61% of our nation was made up of what they call the middle class. Now, okay. you know, it's amazing. I looked up what's the definition of middle class. Well, I'm not even going to try there because it's according to who you're reading. But the middle class, let's just say that group of people that's in the middle class, 61%. Well, today, only 50% of our U.S. population is considered to be in the middle class. So you're that wow. right. It's much, much hmm. smaller. And by the way, for those of you thinking about debt, at age 54 is the age when the average American expects to be debt-free. But 20% of adults today, that is ages 25 through 55, believe they will never beyond it. <laughs> Never. That is not good. No, that's not that's good. That's sad. You know, I, uh, I hate to admit that. I've seen people that I can tell you that's one of the 20. That's one of the 20%. Well, hey, if you just tuned in, I've got a great guest. He is a frequent guest of ours. He's with Stewardship Partners, Rusty Leonard. When we come back, we're going to dive in. In fact, the first question I'm going to ask him, one that I'm sure you would like to know, the markets around the world have gone straight down since the first of the year. Did we miss something? Did we just go to sleep over the holidays? We're going to find out when we come back. Stay with us. You're listening to Talk Money on KWAM 990. You're listening to Talk Money with Jim Shoemaker. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Just search for Shoemaker Financial. Talk Money will return after this. Have you thought about pursuing a career in financial services but have no experience in the industry and need training? If you are goal-oriented, highly motivated, and enjoy working with people, you have the skill set Shoemaker Financial is looking for. Shoemaker Financial is continuing to grow their team of financial advisors in the Mid-South, and they're ready with the training and tools you need to get started. With over 35 years of providing professional advice, quality products, and excellent service in the Mid-South, you too can now be a part of their growing firm. If you're interested in learning more about this opportunity, 
contact Keisha Parrish at 901-757-5757 or email at kparish at shoemakerfinancial.com. Helping you make the most of your money? This is Talk Money with Jim Shoemaker. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific point in time and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results, research, investment advice, or a recommendation to purchase or sell a security. And now, once again, here's your host for Talk Money, Jim Shoemaker. Well, as I was telling you before we took the break, we're going to be talking with the CEO and founder of Stewardship Partners, Rusty Leonard, a frequent guest of ours, one of the very knowledgeable individuals when it comes to the market, and he does a great job of putting it in languages that anybody and everybody can understand. And one of the questions, Rusty, first of all, welcome to the program, sir. Thank you for being a part of the program with us. Always a pleasure to be with you, Jim. Well, you know, one of the questions, Rusty, and, I, and I, again, I, we kind of talked about it a little bit before the program, but the reality was it's like, you know, the market was seemed to be kind of recovering since August, and, you know, it wasn't going great, but we'd kind of bounced back from the correction of August. And, I mean, everybody was pretty optimistic, went into the holidays, had a great Christmas, New Year's, everybody came back, and on Monday morning, it was like, wow, what happened? It started down, it's going down. In fact, before the before we got you on the line, I had mentioned to, to Art that, you know, hey, somebody said last week that, you know, the market didn't go down last Monday. Well, of course, no, the market was closed. It was Martin Luther King Day, but that was kind of the joke of the day. It was the first day that it hadn't been down, it seemed like. Did we miss something happening while we were out on New Year's Eve? I mean, was it just something going on that we did? It, did, did I miss the headlines? What's happening? Well, I don't think we did miss the headlines. I think it's really, uh, and we've talked about it on the program for a long time, that the concerns that the market has are principally around China and you know what the implications might be there for the rest of the world and for the problems that they're, they're facing, and um, the oil prices. And those are the things that uh, they were in place. In fact, the whole recovery that we had, in mostly in October, if you recall, we hit a low in August, and we tested that low at the very end of September. And October was a fantastic month. The S&P was up, I think, about 10% or so in, in, uh, in October. And that really didn't make a whole lot of sense because nothing was getting better. It was more of a, a reaction to the fact that the traders who now dominate Wall Street had gotten themselves overcommitted on the short side of the equation. So they were overcommitted on betting the market will, will go down. And once the market stopped going down, they all raced to, to cover those bets, causing the market to go higher. But in November, it kind of flattened out. And in December, it was a negative month. And it's usually a positive month. Right, right, yeah. So then when we woke up on uh, after the New Year's Eve, came into the, you know, to invest, all of a sudden all those traders have once again found themselves in the wrong position and said, you know what, things really aren't that great. And they, we should have never pushed this market up in the first place. Let's get out and let's get out right now. And, uh, I, and I think that's what you saw. You basically saw trading uh, traders who now dominate the market, you know, jettisoning positions, and you didn't have, in the past, you had some help for the market from companies buying back their own shares, but companies aren't allowed to do that prior to initially uh, announcing their earnings. Earnings, right. Earnings for the year. So that that prop for the market was pulled out, plus you had all the traders selling, and all of a sudden, it looks awfully ugly. When you say that you could have used speculators, okay? Yeah, I could have used the word speculators instead of traders. These are people who... Um, are aggressive investors moving in and out very quickly, hedge funds, uh, and they use leverage oftentimes to do that. So when that means when they take a position and they've borrowed money to put that position on, they're at much greater risk than the average investor. And, and Jim, you and I have been around for centuries, it seems. Okay, right? you, you don't have to go there. <laughs> it's the common joke here in the studio. Jim's been around a century or so. Go ahead. <laughs> but, uh, and in the old days, uh, most people were longer-term investors. There right. always have been speculators in the market but they were kind of on the margin. They didn't dominate trading on a daily basis. Now the speculators dominate trading on a daily basis. And so we get wilder swings and stupider moves in the market. The, the market will move on things it shouldn't move on sometimes. And so it's a little it's a little more maddening than it used to be because of the nature of the stock market itself of all the short-term traders. But, you know, I think for our listener, though, that's a critical thought process because, uh, you know, you're right. I mean, I know and you thought you might say that, that years ago you didn't see the the enormous movement in a day that you would, you know, you might see some movement over a period of time, but, you know, if you go back 
could see 1987. We could dive into that, but that's not the point I'm doing. But you're right. Today, the volatility seems to be uh, swings are harder, longer, and deeper, if that, if that makes sense. Does that seem like what you're talking about with these traders that are dominating, the speculators? Yes, yeah, yeah. definitely so, because you know, they're, they're exposed and they've uh, because they have the leverage, and they now account for you know, more than fifty percent of all the right. trading in the market. Whereas, you know, a couple of decades ago, uh, it was more like you know they accounted for ten or fifteen percent of the market trading. Right. And longer-term investors like Warren Buffett and John Templin, who I had the privilege of working for, we all were we were the guys setting the prices in the market on on an average day. Now it's the speculators who are setting the prices. Well, that's such a good thing for our listeners to know, though is the reality that these guys are not long-term, and therefore you can't get too caught up in what they're doing. Well, we could get off on that. That's not what I'm talking about. I guess you mentioned it earlier, China. Uh, you know, we've talked about China. You're exactly right. We've kind of been into that situation several times. What's the latest development there where what's causing investors to be concerned? What What's created this concern in China? Well, since the last time we've talked, uh, there's been a couple of things that have really started to accelerate there that have uh, destabilized the thing, the situation in China, and really destabilized investors' perceptions of it. And that's the re- reduction in the foreign reserves and the decline in their currency. And so. For years, we've been talking on this show about China as, as a concern, but they were always able to hold together. And one of the uh, ways in which that was evident that they were able to hold it together was the fact that their currency remained reasonably priced and their foreign reserves continued to build, which is their savings, their national savings, essentially, if you want to look at it in a simplistic way. So their, the national savings account for China was growing, even while there was lots of disconcerting things happening in their economy. Well, now that's changed. Uh, all of a sudden, they're they're blowing through their savings very quickly as they try to rescue, rescue their economy and prop up the value of their currency. And so that has caused investors to say, hey, you know, we were counting on them being able to hold this together, and maybe they can't. And if they can't, it's the second largest economy in the world, and that might have all kinds of implications for the rest of the world. So that's what's really uh, caused people to get to translate a long-standing concern about China into market concerns, you know, causing the market to fall. In the yeah. past, those concerns haven't caused that. Now they are. I get that. Let me ask you this. So a lot of people don't believe the numbers that come out of China. Your thoughts on that? And I guess two, two questions. Can we believe the numbers that come out of China? Do is there? There's always that cloud of: is this a true number? Is it? Is it? Is a is a falsified number? Is it a uh, maybe a, a kind of a em, embellished number or something? That's first question. Second, though, is if you still got a, a gross national, you know, they're they're still growing, and their GDP is at six percent or six and a half percent. It may be down a little bit, but still growing. Is that that big a deal? So that's two questions, probably totally completely different questions. Are the numbers embellished? And a growth of 6% still sounds pretty good. What do you think? Well, uh, yes, the numbers are almost certainly embellished. Uh, or I don't know. Sometimes you wonder if it's embellished or if they're just not very good at you know, putting those numbers together. But I, I would lean towards embellished, particularly on the, the really marquee numbers like GNP. Uh, so somebody just joked they came out with a GNP of 6.9% in the most recent uh, year just short of their 7% target, and some economists joked that they wished that they could always be the one predicting uh, just Chinese GMP growth because it's always the same, and so you never can be wrong, whereas economists predicting U.S. GMP growth right. are always wrong. You right. know, they always get it wrong. Right. So you're much much better job security if you had to predict uh, this number. But it's, it's ridiculous. When you look at some of the data trends, there's no volatility in them at all. They're kind of locked in at a certain number, and that's just ridiculous and obviously not true. So I think they are embellished. Uh, at least for some of the larger headline numbers. But there's other numbers, for instance, like electricity consumption in China apparently grew only about a half a percent last year. Well, that doesn't reflect an economy that was growing at you know, 6.9%. So there's clearly some, some degree of uh, nonsense in the major numbers. We suspect that the, uh, the electricity consumption number of half percent, I think that's probably right. That's probably a fair number. And uh, I think the other numbers are the ones that are embellished. Now, does it matter that it's growing? Its growth is slowing, but it's still growing rather rapidly. Well, we don't really know how fast it's growing. Uh, maybe it's growing at 4%. Maybe it's growing at 2%. Maybe it's growing at a half percent, like the electricity usage would suggest. So all those things uh, are, are hard to, you know, it, it makes a big difference because 
it affects so many things around the world. And the way you can tell that Chinese growth isn't 6.9% is by looking at oil prices or looking at copper prices or looking at iron ore prices. All those things have fallen off a cliff. And they would only fall off a cliff if China was really uh, having troubles economically because China had been the... uh, you know, the largest consumer of all of those types of uh, commodities, uh, especially in terms of uh, contributing to the growth rate of those commodities in the past, you know, gosh, decade. Decade, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they had they've come to dominate the uh, buying and selling of those commodities, and all of a sudden they're just selling and not buying, or certainly buying far less than they would have bought before and, and liquidating some of their inventories. And that's causing major, major problems. So I think you can just look at those commodity prices and realize that China isn't growing anywhere near as fast. And you can see how that has affected the rest of the world, because Brazil, for instance, is in a crisis right now, because they used to sell a lot of commodities to... Um, to China and uh, all the any any energy producing country, which includes the U.S., is also getting beat up by the fact that oil prices are so low because China is no longer consuming quite as rapidly as it did in the past. Okay, now let's let's put this in kind of in a perspective. If you're saying that oil prices dropping like their commodities in general, just you said that, and of course the consumption is not there, but let's turn it around and think about it from this perspective. And I want your take. I went to the gas station yesterday and bought gas for a dollar and fifty seven cents a gallon. Now, let me put that in in my thought mindset. I paid a dollar fifty cents. I filled up the tank and I spent I don't know forty dollars. I got a truck. All right. I normally could have easily spent sixty dollars. So that twenty dollars that I didn't spend on gas, I'm going to spend that on whatever coffee, a hamburger, something. Isn't that good for the economy when I can look at, say, you know, the consumers not having to spend so much money at the uh, at the pump? Is that does that not help balance this problem out? But yet you're saying because we're at twenty eight, twenty dollars, about twenty seven, twenty eight dollars a barrel, that that's bad for us. It's to, help me help me understand that. So there's multiple parts of that. First of all, I want to see you using that money to buy a salad, not a hamburger. Well, okay. I had to come up with something. You're right. <laughs> oh, you're quick, Rusty. You're quick. Actually, how about tofu? I would have bought tofu. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Probably a hamburger. No, I wouldn't have bought a hamburger. But you're right. Okay. So help me with that. I have a bit of a two-tiered economy because of uh, what's going on here. So any, anybody who's involved in the industrial sector of the, of the global economy, there's suffering pretty badly right now. There's a recession in that sector. So anything to do with commodities, materials, you know, or making parts for Caterpillar tractors or something like that, they're all suffering right now. But the rest of us are all loving it because we're getting these lower prices and we are buying more burgers and salads and everything else. And in fact, that's what the numbers show, that the uh, there has been more money spent on eating out uh, recently as the gas prices have gone down. There's also been more saving. People have been better about saving their money. And we've seen in the United States uh, debt service ratios, which means the amount of money that goes to have to pay your debts off every month, have declined quite considerably since 2008. So the consumer has benefited from this. And now the big question is, will the consumer benefit so much and spend so much that will pull the rest of the, the industrial sector of the global economy out of its recession? Or will the industrial uh, recession leak into the consumer sector eventually and cause uh, a entire global recession to occur. Uh, At the moment, it appears that the consumer, who is larger, much larger than the industrial sector, has a good shot at pulling the the global economy out of that recession. But it's still not clear. And uh, we have to remember that here in the U.S., while you and I might be benefiting, you know, because of uh, the lower gas prices, there are quite a lot of people who were employed on the, uh, the shale oil fields and North Dakota and Western Pennsylvania and Ohio and places like that where all these fields, new fields and all this new energy was being developed. They're they're now getting laid off or taking pay cuts or things of that nature. So it's a a complex uh, problem with some going up nicely, some going down, and it's hard to determine exactly where the balance will be, and the market hasn't figured it out yet. And as long as the market's concerned about what the actual answer will eventually be, it's probably going to tend towards the negative. That makes sense. Let me, this this thought from you, from a standpoint, you talk about the the oil prices. Uh, I know a lot of people consider us, North America, we're the second largest oil producer. Then you've got the Middle East, and we're also the largest consumer. But the Middle East, because, I've heard it put 
put it this way, Rusty, and I guess I'm, have we been kind of having a price war? You know, Michigan, a couple of days ago, they had the price war up in some little town in Michigan where they got down to 47 cents a, a, yeah, you know, for right. a gallon. I was so impressed with that. Reminds me of back when I was a little kid, and, you know, those were <laughs> those were prices that I remember. But 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 is this a battle? Are we, are we in a, a price war with uh, the Middle East? And is that destabilizing the Middle East or destabilizing our economy from that standpoint? Are, first of all, are we in a price war with them? Is that what's going on? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And they, uh, we, we, started, we started the war by virtue of our great success in these shale oil fields. And the fact that our production was going up, 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 and our imports of oil were going down, 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 which was one of the most fantastic things that has ever happened in the United States. And uh, Barack Obama has been uh, one lucky president to have it happen on his watch because yeah. it enabled uh, things to really look much better than they probably would have if that had not occurred. And so by virtue of that increased supply coming out of the U.S. Uh, and the lack of imports, the lack of need for Saudi and Kuwaiti oil and all the other ones over there in the Middle East, uh, the price began to collapse. Well, the Saudi Arabians got kind of freaked out by that. And about a year and a quarter ago, they decided we're going to pump oil like there's no tomorrow, push prices down and, and bankrupt these people, not just uh, – in the United States, but in Russia, and they also have a you know a moral enemy in the country of Iran. They wanted to really mess them up as well. So they had a lot of good reasons to uh, to push oil production up, oil prices down, and try to drive their competitors out of business. And you know what? They're probably going to succeed in that. Hmm. We're probably up so far after about a year and a quarter of this. U.S. Uh, oil men have been pretty clever and been able to keep production levels just below the peaks that were reached before this all started to turn you know, turn sour on them. But it looks now like we're hitting that point where all of a sudden the taps are going to be turned off in a lot of these oil fields that they can't produce any longer in a profitable way. And there will be some companies that will be going bankrupt as well. And so that whole thing will help bring down the supply of oil. You know what they, they always say, and it's a very true statement, the, the, the best solution for too low oil prices is too low oil prices because those too low <laughs> oil prices kick somebody out of business. Yeah, and it does. And eventually, eventually the demand will come back, and we've got to, that, that will drive the prices back up. But that's the concern. How long will that take? Does, does we have yeah, an idea? It's not going to happen overnight, that's no. for sure. It'll no. take quite some time. I know that uh, Moon Pickens mentioned it. I read this, that he mentioned something in August. I believe he was in Vegas at a convention, and he said, well, by the time we get uh, to December the 31st, oil barrel oil will be at $55 a barrel. I think that's what I may not be quoting me exactly, but I think that's what he said, and I don't think he got that one right. So no. <laughs> that was a little different. But He's, uh, He was talking his own book. Now. Yeah, he was. Well, I want to take a break and come back, but I, I guess I, my two questions is, the, is that going to create some geopolitical problems for us with the Middle East because of, of this unsettling or driving of the oil? And then again, I really want to know what the government's doing, because the reality is, if this gets us into a recession or something like a recession, I want to know what you think is, um, what's their next arrow in their quiver? Have we used them all? Have they got anything back? Well, let's just stay with it. When, you, when we come back, guys, this is the answer. So have we got a geopolitical problem in the Middle East? Has the government got anything else they can do? Can the Fed pull this one out of the hat like they did in 2008? Well, the only place I know to go find that is stay with us because we got somebody that knows how to talk about it. That's Rusty Leonard with Stewardship Partners. He'll be with us when we come back. So stay tuned. You're listening to Talk Money, and I'm Jim Shoemaker. of your money this is talk money with jim shoemaker jim shoemaker is a registered representative and investment advisor representative of securian financial services incorporated securities dealer member finra sipc shoemaker financial is independently owned and operated talk money will return after this take a second and think about the three most important goals or priorities in your life right now At Shoemaker Financial, their team of qualified and experienced financial professionals is committed to helping you achieve these goals or priorities. From insurance needs to college funding, retirement, or estate planning, Shoemaker Financial is here to help you accomplish your long-term financial objectives. To learn more, visit ShoemakerFinancial.com or contact them at 901-757-5757. At Shoemaker Financial, it's not just the plan, it's the results. 
This is Talk Money with Jim Shoemaker. The views and opinions expressed are those of Rusty Leonard only and have not been presented on behalf of or endorsed by Securian Financial Services Incorporated or Shoemaker Financial. Helping you make the most of your money. Once again, here's your host for Talk Money, Jim Shoemaker. Well, welcome back. I'm talking with Rusty Leonard, stewardship partners, and I mean an experienced investment guy that knows the stuff and can really kind of put it where we can understand it. And he, we've been talking for about 30 minutes now. And I, uh, Rusty, I so much appreciate what you do for us and how you do explain the questions that I try to come out with and ask you. You explain them. You put them in uh, easy-to-understand terms. I know our listeners do appreciate that very much. And I guess the question I want to lead with is um, Middle East. Is the problems in the Middle East, the, and I'll use the term geopolitical ramifications of the oil prices, something that we should be concerned about? Uh, what do you see, and uh, how do you think about it? What do you think? Yeah, it's definitely something to be concerned about uh, because there's multiple ramifications from this. Uh, we mentioned just before the break about how Saudi Arabia and Iran are kind of mortal enemies, and uh, part of Saudi Arabia's intent uh, during the when they decided to push the oil production up, push the prices much, much lower, was to hurt Iran, who, because Iran is already – the two countries are in a proxy war. In, in Yemen, they're basically at war with one another through, through uh, backdoor methods. You know, it's not a direct war. But that alone, if that ever goes from a proxy war to a hot war, one where they're fighting each other directly, well, my goodness, uh, you know, oil prices would probably go up real fast, <laughs> and there would be a, a big reversal in that whole situation. Uh, then on top of that, you have Russia. Russia depends heavily on oil oil production. It's uh, either the first or second largest uh, producer out there in, in oil. And um, they are really getting pinched at the moment because of the, the fall in oil prices. In fact, they just had the central bank uh, of Russia just called for an urgent meeting to discuss the falling value of their currency because of this problem with oil. So they are they are in a, in a situation where, you know, they would really like to see higher oil prices. Mm. And here they are with fighters on the ground, you know, Air, Air, Air Force fighters and also some of their personnel on the ground in Syria. Uh, they're in a place where they could maybe stir up some trouble. They're also uh, allies with Iran, which, you know, we're allies with Saudi Arabia. It's, you know, there's a whole lot there that could go get ugly real fast. So these are things that probably won't happen, but they're, the more the oil prices stay down, the higher the incentive is for things to be stirred up uh, from a, a violent perspective, a wartime perspective, in order to help push those oil prices back. back. You know, you mentioned that and you said that. I remember, and this goes back a long, long time ago, I was in the 10th grade taking American history and my, I was uh, listening to the teacher at the time and the comment that was made, he said, you know, we have to understand that you could go to war. This was back in the 60s now. You could go to war over oil because oil is what every country will run on in the future. Now, that's just, I mean, was he a sage? Uh, he would think he was, and I'm sure he felt that, and I, I had to pass this course, so I thought so. But that's really kind of what he's talking about right now. We could go to war just over oil production and control of oil, and that's uh, kind of what you're saying. And uh, I guess my thoughts are, are we headed, you know, a lot of people feel like that we get into this mindset of a volatile market since January. And when we started the program, we, we talked about the fact that, you know, the market's down dramatically, you know, 8, 9, 10 percent. Um, is this a bear market? And Does a bear market get associated with a recession? And I guess I'm asking that question because I want to come back and ask, what do you think the Fed's going to do? So, again, sure. I'm asking sure. you 16 questions in one big... That's all right. <laughs> not a problem. Not okay. a problem. All right. We'll what are your thoughts? To, to answer them. Well, uh, we're not in a recession here in the United States yet. Like I said, part of our economy is in a recession. The industrial sector is kind of in a recession. And if you look globally, there are certainly countries that are in recession. Uh, and then if you want to take that one step further and look at the stock markets, there are many stock markets that are already beyond a correction and into a bear market. A correction is generally uh, regarded as a 10% decline from the previous high, and a uh, bear market requires a 20% decline. Well, many markets have already declined by 20%. Yesterday yesterday morning, I think Euro the European markets in, in mass fell into a bear market for the first time. Japan fell into a bear market. In fact, the United States is one of the few markets that hasn't been in a bear market so far. We're only into a correction down. 12, 13% from the highs. So uh, there is, the markets are predicting a recession. And, and that's 
you know, not always correct. The old joke there is that, you know, the markets have predicted uh, 10 of the last three recessions. And so you have to be careful that yeah. uh, you don't go overboard with uh, believing the market all the time because the market is a, is a kind of a lunatic and goes uh, gets very erratic in its behavior. So we may or may not go into a recession. The market is kind of predicting that we may. And uh, it's also worth noting that uh, in 13 of the last bear markets, 10 of them were associated with recessions. So it's most typically you don't get a, a bear market unless you do have a recession. So we could already be, if we don't get a recession, we're probably very close to the lows. And maybe you've already hit them, even as, you know, it may turn out that yesterday was the low in the stock market. Well, do you think, do you think the Fed has the quiver, you know, the arrows in the quiver to do something to have that? You know, they did the intervention, uh, you know, we see that in 08 and 09. Is the Fed doesn't seem like to have, in my opinion, a lot of things they could do, and I think that's what a lot of people fear. Your thoughts on that? Do they have the arrows they can pull out of the quiver? Well, they certainly have fewer than they had before after after having doing QE one, two, and three. Right. They've added a lot of assets to their balance sheet, and they would really like to, you know exit that and kind of get back to a more normalized monetary uh, policy and a more normalized balance sheet for the Federal Reserve. It's going to take them years and years and years and years to do that. My guess is that uh, unless things get really bad, unless we do turn into a recession, that the Fed is going to be reluctant to uh, to do too much more on that front. However, if it gets bad and they can see that they can uh, influence prices, again, of, of securities, of stocks and bonds, and that that would be helpful. I do believe that the Fed still has some, some ammunition left to do that. Um, it's not they would prefer not to, but if uh, the circumstances were such, they, they may just go ahead and do that. So that's always a possibility. The European Central Bank today had a meeting, and uh, Draghi, the European Central Bank governor, you know, talked about in March, they may, if things continue to deteriorate, they may indeed uh, try to lower interest rates further. And as you know, they already have negative interest rates on a lot of government bonds in, in uh, Europe, so it's kind of hard to lower them even further than, than uh, less than zero, but that's what they, they're they talking about potentially doing. Um, and in Japan, they've kind of, they're, they're kind of going crazy in Japan with their central bank, and there I don't think they have much left in the gas tank to, uh, to help their their economy out. So China still has a lot of things they can do. We'll see what happens. Uh, never underestimate what governments will do to make the man in power look good. So, uh, you know, there's still still possibilities for government intervention in the markets. And uh, But I do believe the Fed would rather stay on the sidelines. And I do believe the Fed is willing to let investors suffer a little bit uh, this time around, whereas in the past they were trying to keep volatility away. Now I don't think they're as uh, fearful of it because they think the economy itself is strong enough. If that changes, they may change their mind, too. And may get change. Back yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, when we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I, I think this is um, uh, – well, I actually got waved off on the quick break. We're not going to take a quick break. So I uh, think that's uh, that's why I don't produce the program. I just do the program. And uh, quickly you find out I have no control over what goes on on the program. So here's my question for you, Rusty. I've some thinking. I, you know, the idea behind the eighth month – eighth year of a presidential, you know, he's going two terms. This is his eighth year. There's a lot of people that are a lot of things you read that the eighth year of the cycle of the presidents, in other words, these two terms, the last year of his term is a bad period or a bad year for stocks. You agree or disagree? Well, you have to agree because that's just the stats. Yeah, now, I know are, that. I must... there, haven't been, <laughs> there haven't been too many um, too many data points, though, so it's hard. It's not like a statistically significant type of thing. It's just kind of an observation that you make. And it has some degree of common sense to it in that when you've had one guy in power for eight years, somebody new is coming in, oftentimes it's going to be the opposite party, and that oftentimes means it's going to be a big change in the, the trajectory of the country. And so there's uncertainty brought about as a result of that for investors. They don't know exactly what's going to happen, and they don't know who's going to win the election. So, uh, so there's... There's just more uh, a greater likelihood of a of that impacting the marketplace during the eighth year of a presidential election cycle, and uh, on average, stocks have been down you know close to 15 percent in the eighth year. Uh, we're already almost down that this year, so yep. so there may not be much more pain from here if we're just going to hit the average uh, this time around. So it's but it is something to be 
you know, it is disconcerting. It is something to, to you know, remind yourself that that is true, that that increased uncertainty does impact the market. And of course, this year we have even greater uncertainty because of the nature of the candidates that are leading the race. Well, that's exactly that. I mean, that's a huge issue. I mean, in fact, so many people put too much into politics affecting the market. I mean, you know, really, it's earnings and it's valuations. We're in an earnings season right now. Are you expecting that those two earnings and valuations are going to really do what they need to do, or are we so caught up in the politics that it's affecting us? Well, let me give you a broader look at earnings around the world. So the U.S. earnings are actually going to be down uh, in the fourth quarter. Uh, you know, they always earnings always you're going to wake up every morning and hear that you know xyz company reported and it reported better than expected earnings because that's just part of the game that's played but when it's all said and done earnings are going to be down uh for the quarter and even for the year it's going to be a close call whether or not we have a a positive or negative uh, year in earnings for the s&p 500 overseas earnings have been down for the last 12 to 18 months anyway uh, they've already been heading down. Uh, part of that is just because of the strength of the dollar and when you translate those earnings back into dollars. And that's also uh, impacting U.S. earnings because so much of the U.S. companies' activity is overseas as well. So the strong dollar has been impacting negatively the earnings front. So stocks need earnings. Well, they don't need earnings, but you know, if you want to have a good stock market, you want to have higher earnings. And most people are predicting higher earnings for in 2016 for the S&P 500, but they always do that, and they're always wrong. They're always too high. So there's some risk still out there to earnings in 2016. Uh, the trend is not your friend. The trend is going the wrong way, so it needs to break that trend first. I think what you'll see in the first quarter is that you'll see you know people having earnings that are down but not horrible. But the real key thing is what those companies will tell investors when they report those earnings about what they think the rest of the year will look like. And as that, as, if it comes out in a lot of these. Uh, pronouncements by corporate managements about their future outlook on earnings are negative or cautious, uh, that's going to impact the market in a negative way as well. Well, if you've just been tuned in, we are talking with Rusty Leonard, Stewardship Partners. This is Talk Money. I'm Jim Shoemaker. And when we come back, all I've got left for Rusty in this short few minutes we've got left is, um, you know, we put too much emphasis on politics. I mean, you got the Trump and you got the Clinton, you got the Bush. You got, I mean, you got all kinds of people. So, Rusty, what I'm really looking for is uh, What do you think is going to affect the stock market when we come back right after this? This is Talk Money with Jim Shoemaker. The views and opinions expressed are those of Rusty Leonard only and have not been presented on behalf of or endorsed by Securian Financial Services Incorporated or Shoemaker Financial. Helping you make the most of your money, Talk Money will return right after this. Support for the abolitionist cause in Tennessee highlighted just how divided the state was over slavery during the antebellum era. Most of the northern states had outlawed slavery decades before the Civil War. However, it was legal for southern slave catchers to pursue escaped slaves into the north and a federal offense for northern residents to help escaped slaves avoid recapture. Most of what we know today about the Underground Railroad comes down to us from oral tradition as every effort was made to avoid any written record of these activities. In East Tennessee, where there were few large families, only one in 12 persons was a slave. But in West Tennessee, almost four out of every five persons were slaves. Though the first anti-slavery publication in the U.S., The Emancipator, was printed in Washington County, Tennessee, the two suspected underground railroad sites in Tennessee, the Burkle and the Hunt-Feelin Estates, are in Memphis. This has been another Mid-South History Moment Brought to you by Shoemaker Financial. Helping you make the most of your money. This is Talk Money with Jim Shoemaker. Investments in commodities and natural resources involve heightened risk due to leveraging and speculative investment practices, lack of periodic valuation requirements, and potentially complex tax structures. And now, once again, here's your host for Talk Money, Jim Shoemaker. Well, we've been talking with Rusty Leonard. He's done a great job of talking a lot of complex issues to bring it down to easy to understand. And now I've got him, and I will not let him go until he gives 
us some kind of an idea as far as the political. You know, that we you can't turn on the news today without something political. We're in a presidential race. And, Rusty, you kind of alluded to it. A little bit of that uncertainty is not good for the market. Um, have you got any predictions? Uh, how do you see it f- going through there? And um, I wish I could give you two hours to talk about this, but I can't. So <laughs> help me out. What do you think? <laughs> Well, it's been crazy so far, and I think it will probably continue to be kind of crazy. I think the biggest crazy thing that will happen will be on the uh, Democratic side. Uh, I think I don't see how Hillary Clinton is going to avoid one of two things. One, having to withdraw from the race because she's under indictment for what she's done with the emails and uh, letting, doing a bad job of handling our state secrets, essentially. And um, or 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 two not getting indicted, uh, you know, being a, there being a huge political free-for-all over the fact that she wasn't when she obviously should be, and having to deal with, you know, the consequences of that electorally, which might cause her to lose the election anyway. I don't think you end up with Bernie Sanders as the guy who is going to lead the Democratic Party when that all comes about. I think you'll end up with Joe Biden or somebody else who will come in at the last instant, and you'll probably have a very entertaining Democratic uh, convention come summertime. I agree. That. Yeah, I think you're right there. Yeah. And but all that you know, there's a lot of uncertainty for the marketplace to handle, and I'm not quite sure that um, you know it will all go very smoothly. Although I agree with you that the impact of politics is overrated on the markets, and uh, usually I think the the economy and the markets shape the politics more than the politics shape the the uh, market. Uh, on the Republican side, of course, it's less of a free for all at this stage of the game. It sure seems that the anger of the conservative uh, base of the Republican Party is being vented through Donald Trump. And uh, unless he, I mean, he said all kinds of things to blow himself up, and he's never been blown up yet. So uh, it's hard to see how he could stumble uh, in some new way that would undermine his uh, his candidacy. But, you know, it's been a crazy year. Anything can happen. Anything can and, happen. Uh, yeah. And it's not very clear to me exactly what the end result will be there. I would think you have to bet at this stage of the game that Trump wins it. And... Um, you know, it's he's such an erratic character uh, that, from a market standpoint, there's going to be some concern about you know what he will really uh, you know what he says on Wednesday. He may not agree with himself by Friday, and so and the market so, doesn't uh, like that. And the market no, doesn't, doesn't like, like that at all. Yeah, that's not that's not Ronald Reagan running. It's no. uh, somebody else. Yeah. So it's uh, so it's very disconcerting from that standpoint. So I do think if you know while the politics, I don't think usually have that big of an impact. It could be that this time around, it, it could have a, a bigger impact than normal, particularly as we get into the third quarter of the year, and it all comes into focus. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you, sir, so much. Uh, you've been listening to Rusty Leonard, founder and CEO of Stewardship Partners Investment Council, and I mean one of the smartest men I know. And it's always a pleasure to have him on the program. Does a great job for us, Rusty. Have a great day today. Day, man, and thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you as well. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Have a good day. Well, if you've been tuned in, of course, we've been talking about the market. We've been talking about the economy. We've talked about China, oil. I mean, politics. It's all part of it. But I want to give you a couple of things here, some some thoughts about some some ways to manage all of the, the things that are being said, the, the volatility, the ups and the downs, the emotions. So, number one, I want to say don't follow the herd. Stay out of listening to all the media, listening to all the things. Get caught up in that. Stay away from from that, it, you know, the herd mentality, it's that whole group of people running and jumping off the cliff. Don't do that the way you do, the way you should redeem yourself for that is follow the rules. Be careful not to respond to every report that you hear on the news or headlines. I mean, I read a headline the other day. It said recession. And, of course, by the time I read the article, it wasn't even talking about recession, but it sure caught my eye. And I think that's what you have to be. And I think the second thing about that is be disciplined. Just don't 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 get caught up in it. Just be disciplined. So don't follow the herd. That's a bad thing to do. Number two, and I, I don't know, this is so hard, and I and I had someone to talk about it with me the other day, emotional investor. Don't get caught up in being emotionally involved. Be careful not to respond to every report that you see. Put the volatility out of your mind. Uh, just, again, focus on your long-term objectives. I mean, you heard Rusty talk about it. The day traders today have shortened the cycle and made the volatility more ups and downs than we've ever 
ever had before. The reality is stay long term. If you if you can focus the fact that you've got a goal that's 10, 15, 20 years out, don't get caught up with what happened today. Don't be emotional when you get caught up in your investments. That's important. And then, of course, know that you've got suitable diversification. You're allocated properly according to what you have said is is your risk tolerance. I mean, if you're saying, I can't take whatever. I mean, if you're, if you're saying that you can't sleep at night because of the market, then you are probably too much in the in the stock side of the market. Maybe you need to be in the So know what your suitability is. Know what your risk tolerance is. Know what your, how you feel about the market. And once you do that, do a proper amount of diversification, a proper amount of allocation, and then stick to it. In other words, once you do it, Stick to it. That's important for you to do that. Here's how you do that. Wise investors sell some winners and buy some things to keep that balance in there, making sure that you're doing that. Don't neglect to rebalance your portfolio because you've got caught up in this idea that I like what this is doing over here. You sell high and buy low. That's important. Keep your asset mix to the what you have said your allocation should be. So, again, don't follow the herd. Don't be emotional. Proper, suitable diversification and rebalancing and the allocation that you need. And here's another thought for you. Don't get so complicated. My goodness, I've seen people that try their best to get so involved. I mean, you become the analytical guru. I've been doing this almost 40 years. And to be honest with you, you can get into the weeds so quick, so fast that you don't really understand what you're doing. Does that constitute as overthinking? That's overthinking it all day long, Art. That's I mean, you know, and I hear people and I feel for them because I want them to know that that's what you're talking about. But it, it happens that they get in the weeds. And I'll be honest with you when I first started it didn't you could read the analytical analytical report it was three pages long today I can read an analytical report it's 300 pages long <laughs> I mean again don't get so complicated how do you redeem yourself with that how do you keep from that make sure you understand what your portfolio is is doing, how it works. Why do you have this percentage of stocks? Why do you have this percentage of of growth stocks or value stocks? What are you trying to... But understand that and know that, you know what, bottom line is... Get advice and uh, don't be too hard on yourselves. Don't beat yourself up because you're having to ask for advice. I've got some people that come in and they feel like, well, I'm a dummy because i got to ask you a question. No. You know, it's okay. I mean, I ask questions to people all the time because I want to keep it simple. And I, let me, I guess this for everybody listening, bottom line is if you've got an advisor that can't explain it to you, get another advisor. That's important. That's critical. When I come back, I want to do this. I want to cover a couple of more of these critical thoughts, things that help you put the bumpers on your bowling alley and keep the ball somewhere down the center, and you're successful with it. And I'll come back and give you a couple of more of these. They're very important to any investor listening. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this. Securities and investment advisory services are offered through Securian Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA SIPC. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. Neither Securian Financial Services Incorporated nor Shoemaker Financial are affiliated with Rusty Leonard or Stewardship Partners Investment Council Incorporated. Talk money. We'll return right after this. Have you thought about pursuing a career in financial services but have no experience in the industry and need training? If you are goal-oriented, highly motivated, and enjoy working with people, you have the skill set Shoemaker Financial is looking for. Shoemaker Financial is continuing to grow their team of financial advisors in the Mid-South, and they're ready with the training and tools you need to get started. With over 35 years of providing professional advice, quality products, and excellent service in the Mid-South, you too can now be a part of their growing firm. If you're interested in learning more about this opportunity, contact Keisha Parrish at 901-757-5757 or email at kparish at shoemakerfinancial.com. Helping you make the most of your money. 
This is Talk Money with Jim Shoemaker. Financial advisors do not provide specific tax or legal advice, and this information should not be considered as such. You should always consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your own specific tax or legal situation. And now, once again, here's your host for Talk Money, Jim Shoemaker. Well, I've been talking about a couple of um, things to help you, and I don't know if I should call these attitudes, approaches, uh, action steps, whatever, strategies, whatever you want to call them, but some specific things to kind of give you, they're in this volatile market, which is kind of what this program is about, the volatility. I've given you some ideas. First of all, I said following the herd. Don't follow the herd. Be careful not to respond to every news report that you hear or read. Be disciplined when you do that. Don't be an emotional investor was number two. I mean, just understand, it's going to be involved. The market's going to go up and down. Put the volatility out of your mind. Know your time horizon. If it's short-term, mid-term, long-term, focus as much as you can on the long-term, and do not pay attention to what's going on today or yesterday. It, it, it Don't get caught up in that little moments of time and get, you know, where you feel that, hey, it's bad, it's bad. So that's not being, you know, don't be an emotional investor. Then I talked about diversification, asset allocation, knowing how to rebalance your portfolio. Buy you know, sell high, buy low, and manage that. Uh, keep your asset mix where you want it to be. That's the third thing I've talked about. And then number four, I said, make things, don't make things too complicated. I mean, when you struggle, seek advice. If you can't get someone that's giving you advice that you can understand, seek somebody else. Long-term money should be in small things that you can manage and you can understand, and that's important. And number five, I guess, is here's the thing. If, if you've got a strategy, stick to the strategy. Don't get caught up in all the things that you hear somebody else, and don't let somebody talk you into another strategy just because this strategy seems to be maybe out of balance. If it was a good strategy when it started, most of the time it's going to be a pretty good strategy, even during a volatile market. Now, let me say this. I know that in everybody's situations, there's always uh, you know the exception to every rule. All I'm trying to do is give you those thought processes that can help you get through a volatile market. And I've been doing this long enough to know that I can, you know, make a decision today and it's a wrong decision tomorrow. And I understand that. But, you know, at the end of the day, if you have a good strategy, if you don't get caught up in the mentality of the herd, if you keep your emotions out, if you understand that asset allocation manages your risk tolerance, diversification allows you to be balanced across then I think you can end up having a long-term thing that helps you reach your financial dreams and goals. Most of us are saving money for retirement. Maybe it's college education. Maybe it's just the summer home. But whatever you're doing it for, if you have a strategy and you stick to it, that's going to make a big difference for you. And I guess that's kind of what my thoughts are today, is to give you some insight. I know we do it all the time. We have we get emotions, and that's the way it works. But, you know, our job is to keep you from losing that emotional battle that we all go through. So, hey, I appreciate you being with us today. Of course, I always want to thank the people that make this happen. Rusty Leonard did a great job for me today. I appreciate him very much. Producer and board operator, Art Frederick. And my guest and content coordination is done by Francis Fortner. Production assistant, Eller Moscovich. Mid-South History Moments done by Rebecca Brazier and Drew Johnson. And I'm Jim Shoemaker here every Friday morning helping you make the most of your money. Jim Shoemaker is a registered representative and investment advisor representative of Securian Financial Services Incorporated, securities dealer member FINRA SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated.